Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm GP Online's editor, Emma Bauer, and I'm joined today by our news editor, Nick Bostock. Hi. And senior reporter, Luke Haynes. Hello. Coming up, we look at the key news from the past week. We'll be discussing the reaction from the NHS to the government's plans for relaxing almost all of the current COVID-19 restrictions when it moves to step four of its roadmap, as well as plans for a COVID-19 booster vaccination programme this autumn. We'll also be highlighting some good news as latest figures show that the number of doctors entering GP training looks set to break records for the fourth year running. And later in the podcast, I'll be talking to Dr Pauline Foreman, a GP in Hertfordshire and clinical director of the Personalised Care Institute, about why NHS England has made personalised care a key part of its long-term plan and how we can embed it across the NHS in the coming years. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. This week, the government set out details of how it plans to ease restrictions in England when it moves to step four of its roadmap, currently due to take place on the 19th of July. Prime Minister Boris Johnson has said it's now time to move away from government diktat and allow people to make their own informed decisions about how to manage the virus. So the plans include scrapping virtually all legal restrictions currently in place, including the use of face coverings indoors and on public transport, social distancing and limits on the number of people who can gather together. The advice to work from home will also end and all other businesses that remain shut, such as nightclubs, will be able to reopen. The final decision on whether to proceed to step four will be taken on Monday the 12th of July, but all the signs are that the government intends to press ahead a week later on the 19th. Separately, the government has also announced that from the 16th of August, people who've had two doses of the vaccine and children will no longer have to self-isolate if they come into contact with a confirmed case of covid However, cases are continuing to rise and new Health Secretary Sajid Javid has admitted they could hit as many as 100,000 a day after restrictions ease. Hospitalisations and deaths are also starting to increase, albeit at a slower rate than in previous waves of pandemic. Nick, how have doctors reacted to all of this? Well, uh, the BMA has said that it thinks the decision to go ahead with such a sweeping removal of restrictions at this stage is incredibly concerning. And other unions are worried too. So Unite has said, for example, that this is a gung-ho approach from the government. And I think the consensus from people working in healthcare is that they would have liked to see a more cautious, gradual easing of the rules. The worry is uh, moving too too quickly to scrap all the rules at a time when cases of COVID-19 are rising fast will leave hospitals having to turn their attention back to tackling COVID cases and that that in turn will undermine efforts to work through the huge NHS backlog. So clearing that backlog is essential because the large numbers of patients waiting a long time for specialist care mean not only that their outcomes may be worse, but also that in the meantime, GP workload is surging because practices have to manage those patients in primary care with all the extra appointments and administrative work that that entails. In particular, both the BMA and Unite are calling for a rethink on masks. There had been some suggestions that wearing masks on public transport and in closed public spaces, and perhaps in particular in healthcare settings, might continue. Um, And and there's evidence from a recent YouGov poll that the vast majority of the public think masks should still be required in enclosed public spaces and on public transport. And some GP practices are saying they're going to continue to ask patients to wear them on their premises. But at the moment, that isn't part of the, the rules as far as the government has set out. One factor that might be welcome for GP practices in all of the changes that you've talked through, Emma, is um, the plan to scrap the requirement for fully vaccinated people to self-isolate if they're close contacts uh, and to move to a sort of testing regime instead. 
small practice teams have been hit really hard by self-isolation rules at times. And this could go some way to taking a little bit of extra pressure off the GP workforce. Yeah, I mean, what's sort of interesting about this, though, is, um, you know, watching the press briefing earlier this week, I mean, Sir Patrick Vallance, the chief scientific officer, was pretty clear that while vaccination has weakened the link between COVID cases and hospitalisations and death, that link has not been totally broken. I mean, in fact, he he was quite keen to point out that hospital admissions were rising quite steeply. They are rising quite steeply in some parts of the country. Yeah, so cases are rising fast generally at the moment. There are nearly currently 30,000 new cases being reported each day of COVID-19. Um, and the government's admitted that by 19th of July, we could have 50,000 new cases a day. So that's before the restrictions are lifted or at the point when the restrictions are going to be lifted. And that level, 50,000 a day, is, is comparable with the peak in January. So it's a really high level of new infections per day. Uh, and the government has actually said that it's expecting cases to go much further than that, uh, rising to as many as 100,000 cases a day after restrictions are lifted. The government says vaccines have built a wall of protection against hospitalizations. And with about two thirds of the adult population now fully vaccinated, numbers going into hospital with COVID are much lower compared with the current case rate than earlier in the pandemic. But they are still rising. More than 2,000 people were admitted to hospital with COVID-19 in the past week across the UK. Uh, That's up about 50% over the past couple of weeks. Uh, and the BMA is concerned that even a modest rise uh, in uh, in hospitalizations could put unbearable pressure on the NHS and, as we mentioned before, undermine that effort to work through the NHS backlog. Another factor in all of this is that the numbers of cases uh, in different parts of the country, in particular, the coverage of vaccines in different parts of the country, isn't even. So we know from there was a Health Foundation report in the past week uh, that, that talked about the fact that the death toll in some of the most deprived parts of the country was significantly higher than the death toll in other parts of the country. And again, we're seeing that the rate of vaccination in some of those deprived areas is significantly lower than the vaccination rate in other parts of the country that are that are better off. And so what that means is potentially that as cases now start to rise to a, a you know really exceptionally high and an unprecedentedly high level across the country, it could be those parts of the country that are hit hardest. And that, you know, that obviously means potentially deaths among patients in those areas, but it also means pressure on general practice once again. Well, there's also obviously the problem of long COVID. I mean, nobody really knows what the impact of letting cases just rise exponentially is going to have on the number of cases of long COVID. But one can only presume that they are going to go up. And obviously, that's going to put extra strain on general practice in particular, but potentially, you know, the NHS as a whole as well. I mean, one of the other things that's changed a part of this is obviously the COVID-19 vaccination schedule. So everyone over the age of 18 can now have their second jab eight weeks after the first, whereas until now it's only been people over 40. Boris Johnson said the aim was to get all adults double jabbed, as it were, by the middle of September. I mean, the other thing is that the JCVI um, also relatively recently announced plans for a booster campaign, which is scheduled to start from the 6th of September for the most vulnerable, which NHS England has said it wants to run directly alongside flu jabs, potentially with both jabs being happening in the same appointment. I mean, what do we know about that, Nick? 
Yeah, so you're, you're right. It, it does look at the moment as if it will be possible for GP practices to do both those jabs together, which would be a crucial advantage in terms of taking a bit of the workload pressure off of general practice, because this year the flu campaign is, is covering a sort of, as it, as it did last year, double the number of people that it normally does. So it's about half the population. And obviously, COVID booster jabs are going to go to the uh, the bulk of the adult population eventually. But I mean, initially in this sort of uh, the, the part that will be covered in an enhanced service, it's two stages across initially people uh, in an older age group and then people over 50. So there is still research going on. So, that, that, you know, the, the sort of final confirmation that those two jabs can be done at the same time is still to come. That's something that GPs will be uh, watching closely. Yeah, I mean, the other thing, obviously, I suppose, which will be a major issue is whether or not practices can do those booster jabs in their practice rather than at a PCN level as they have done the the original COVID vaccines. Because, because obviously, you know, if they've got to do it at PCN level, then it's going to massively interfere with their normal plans for flu. So that's obviously something that they're they're going to have to have a bit more reassurance about as well. Yeah. The BMA has said it's really important for the booster campaign to be built around the model that practices use every year to deliver flu vaccination. GP practices have been calling throughout the COVID vaccination campaign for greater freedom to deliver jabs at practice level. And the ability to do that would be a big boost as general practice looks to deliver tens of millions of doses over the coming months. Yeah, well, NHS England has said it expects details of the enhanced service to be out before the middle of this month. So everyone can keep an eye on gponline.com for more news on that. So luckily this week, there's also been some good news. Health Education England has revealed that GP trainee recruitment is on track for a fourth successive record-breaking year. Posts filled for the first round for 2021 have broken previous records. So Luke, you've been looking at this for us. Can you tell us a bit about what's going on? Yeah, so a total of 3,690 doctors have accepted GP training positions after the first round of recruitment for 2021, with these posts due to start in August. Uh, There were a total of 3,733 available posts, so that's a fill rate of 98.85% for round one, which is the highest ever figure for a GP training recruitment during this stage. Um, But going back to that 3,690 figure, the total number of posts accepted for this year so far, uh, that's up up by 7% compared to last year. So as as you said in in the intro, uh, GP training recruitment is heading in the right direction. The truth is that it's been looking positive for a few years now. So as you mentioned, it's the fourth year in which uh, trainee recruitment has, has increased, GP trainee recruitment that is. For round one of recruitment in 2018, just to take you a few years back um, and give you a sort of a more broader picture, there were a total of 2,931 uh, GP trainees that were recruited to posts. And for 2019, at the same stage, it was 2,981. So it's really encouraging news that this figure continues to rise and it's sort of on the way up and almost um, at 4,000 GP trainees um, now. Likewise, the fill rate is also improving um, and has improved year on year. So the fill rate for round one of recruitment in 2018 was 90.18% and it increased to 91.72 at the same stage in 2019. And um, obviously, as we've mentioned, it's it's over 98% now for round one in 2021. So as a general observation, I think it's quite impressive that even in a year or even in the last 18 months, recruitment to GP trainee positions has has been continuing to increase just because of the disruption 
although I should say that it's not just general practice that's managing to fill roles. Um, this is the same across all specialities where there was a 35% increase in applicants um, compared to the previous year. So, I mean, has Health Education England said why they think it's gone up this year? Yes. So one of the reasons they've given is that um, there was an increase in domestic applications. So because people haven't been able to travel that freely for the last 18 months, they they, they have given one of the possibilities as more people applying from within the UK and hence why we might have seen um, another another increase for round one in, in this year. Yeah, well, it is really positive news that the number of trainees are increasing but it doesn't necessarily mean that the workforce crisis is coming to an end, does it, Nick? Because we've had absolutely massive problems with retention. So, yeah, you're, you're right. Early retirements by GPs um, have, have tripled over the past decade. And we know also that the pandemic has increased the proportion of doctors who are planning to leave the profession before their normal retirement age. And uh, this is against the backdrop of a, of a profession that's already in decline. So, you know, despite the promises that the government's made repeatedly to increase the numbers of uh, full-time equivalent GPs, there are actually now 10% fewer GPs per patient than there were five years ago. And so uh, an important element in all of this is making the job doable, which is the phrase that the RCGP has, has used repeatedly. And making the job doable is something that could persuade more doctors not only to remain in the profession, but also not to find that they need to reduce their hours to, uh, to make their work-life balance acceptable. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's been a big push on recruitment and quite clearly there needs to be an equally big push, if not a bigger push, on retention measures as well. I'm joined today by Dr. Pauline Foreman, who's a GP in Hertfordshire and the clinical lead of the Personalised Care Institute, a relatively new organisation that aims to set standards and provides access to high quality accredited training in personalised care for all health and care staff. So, Pauline, thanks for joining us today. I just wanted to talk a little bit about personalised care before we get into some other stuff. I mean, a lot of GPs and practices probably feel that they're already providing personalised care to their patients. But how do you define personalised care and why? Do you think it's so important? Thanks very much, Emma. Well, I think um, to start off with a fairly basic definition, it's really about um, allowing people to have more control over the way that their care is planned and delivered um, based really on what matters to them. Because as GPs and healthcare professionals, we're often more slightly more focused on what's the matter with people. So it's trying to work with people's um, strengths, preferences and needs um, to deliver the best healthcare for them, really. Right. I mean, personalised care has obviously been really picked up by NHS England um, as part of its long term plan for the NHS. Why do you think that they've made it such a key part of policy going forwards? Yes, you're absolutely right. And and the Personalised Care Institute is very much there to help them to deliver that policy aim. Um, We've got to uh, facilitate the training of 75,000 healthcare professionals by 2024, which is quite a big ask, really. I think... I mean, personalised care is clearly having a moment right now, but it's actually been around for quite a long time. It started very much as a grassroots movement, mostly in primary care. And I think over time it's developed an evidence base, really. And the benefits really sort of come into three categories. One is in relation to improving healthcare experiences and outcomes for patients. The second is is related to improving job, job satisfactions for GPs and other healthcare professionals which will hopefully translate to helping people to stay within the professions. And the third is it probably helps with the sustainability of the NHS. 
Yeah, you talked a bit about um, improving job satisfaction for GPs and staff there. I mean, what are the benefits of personalised care for GPs and their teams? We, we have to acknowledge before we start that this is a very busy time in general practice. Um, I'm still a frontline GP and the workload at the moment is, is tremendous. Um, and and we're certainly not in the business of trying to add to people's workload, really. It, you know, it's very important that we try to improve people's uh, working life, really, um, because I think we're all at risk of burning out, really, um, and leaving the profession if we don't pay attention to that. And, and the evidence suggests that healthcare professionals prefer consulting in a personalised way. They find it more rewarding and, and that is likely to translate into less burnout and better retention of staff. Yeah, I mean, you talked about workload, obviously, and um, does personalised care, does it take longer, you know, with a, more of an emphasis on shared decision making? You know, is it a case that GPs or their teams probably need to put in a bit more time at the beginning and then they'll reap more benefits later on? And if so, how can they do that at the minute when they are so busy? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a really good question. Um, and there's always a, always a concern about that. Um, and it can be a bit of a barrier sometimes to people wanting um, to introduce personalised care. I think we're probably going to have to work differently in order to, you know, to achieve what we want to achieve, which is personalised care for all, really. Um, and I think that, you know, there are some potentially helpful things out there, particularly at the moment um, in England with the introduction of primary care networks, for example, um, and the introduction of additional staff into general practice, um, including the three roles that are very focused on personalised care. So social prescribing link workers, care coordinators and health and wellbeing coaches who will be there to do some of this work because it's not all about GPs. This is um, for all healthcare professionals, really, that, that need to deliver this. It's not just about GPs and their individual consultations. Um, going back to what you said at the beginning about talking about, do you have to invest some time up front, really? And I, I think that that is important. So we're very, very used to a particular way of working as GPs with our standard 10-minute consultations for everything. And that doesn't really fit very well, you know, when you're looking after increasingly complex people with long-term conditions. And um, so many practices already are experimenting with doing things in different ways. But you're absolutely right. Spending longer with a, a complex patient with um, lots going on at the beginning and developing a care plan is, is worth the investment, really, because then it's much more likely that you'll be able to support them with shorter, maybe even remote consultations rather than seeing them face to face every time. Yeah, you mentioned social prescribing there. I mean, obviously, that's also having a big moment. How does social prescribing fit in with personalised care? It's a really key part of the universal personalised care model, which is the NHS model that the Personalised Care Institute's training is, is based on, really. So there's four main things. There's shared decision making, supported self-management, personalised care um, and support planning and social prescribing. So it's an absolutely key bit of the model. And I think especially during COVID, you know, it's really um, its strength has been very apparent in terms of supporting vulnerable people who are shielding, for example, some of the great work that they've done. And also it's very exciting. You know, it, it's, it's a completely different model. Some of the things that they're doing, uh, linking people up with 
arts resources, community resources, sports, nature, you know, they're, they're doing some fantastic stuff and it, and it's different and it's very, very exciting. Continuity of care is obviously recognised as being really important to improving outcomes, but how does continuity of care fit with personalised care? And is it important the same healthcare professionals are taking care of patients in order to deliver personalised care? I think that's an, another really good question. I think continuity of care is um, incredibly important in its own right. All the evidence suggests that uh, patients prefer it and their experiences are better. And, and actually that the outcomes in terms of admissions and lots of other uh, parameters are much better. Um, a lot of the work as a GP is, is about helping people to manage and you know responding and dealing to crises and things uh, in primary care and trying to prevent people from perhaps being um, admitted to hospital unnecessarily so and and continuity really contributes to that continuity of care makes personalized care easier to deliver because it's all about um, having an effective trusting relationship being able to engage people uh, so that they are you know willing to consider particular treatment options and things like that, or they're in the right frame of mind. And that's much, much easier if you've got a pre-existing relationship. And we're lucky. I mean, continuity uh, of care in general practice, you know, there's less of it around than there used to be um, already. Um, And it's very important to try to maximise it wherever we can. I think the old days of the, you know, the, the, the GP working you know, all hours of the week and and being constantly available for the patients went a long time ago. So I think we've got to move the conversation on a little bit so that it's continuity within teams, um, particularly sort of micro teams within primary care. And that works well in other um, in, in other professionals. I'm thinking about you know maternity and things like that, where continuity for women is also incredibly important, and they're very good at doing that. So I, I think it's possible. NHS England have wanted this move towards a, a more a- personalised care approach. I mean, how has the pandemic impacted on that? You know, both positives and negatives. I mean, have things got better? Have they got worse? Or in some areas have things got better and others they've got worse? I think the pandemic has been helpful in uh, supporting self-management in a number of ways. I think patients have been more willing to, to do it themselves, obviously, because they're aware of the pandemic. But I also think, you know, new developments, remote monitoring, um, you know, some of the initiatives like, you know, monitoring oxygen saturations at home for people with COVID, all of those kind of things contribute to personalised care. Um, I think they're very exciting. Um, I think care planning has come into its own. We've all, all GPs have been um, involved in care planning for their most vulnerable patients. So I think that's become much more mainstream and much more accepted um, as part of everyday practice, if you like, as a result of the pandemic. Just to give a balance to you, I think there are some concerns about the pandemic in terms of the sort of a big switch to remote consulting in particular, um, because that obviously ha- had to happen very quickly, perhaps not in, you know, in a, in, a, in a fairly rushed way because it was an emergency. And I think there are some concerns that about the rather, you know, they can be rather transactional in, in, in nature, particularly perhaps telephone consultations. Personalised care have just had a round table to discuss it, actually. We've, we've got some evidence. We've had a discussion paper produced by um, the University of Bristol, and it just shows that they tend to be shorter, um, very much yeah. focused on one problem. 
some of the other initiatives, for example, that you'll be aware of, you know, using e-consultations, for example, where you've got to say what your problem is in advance, which can be quite difficult to formulate um, and mean tends to mean that the consultation is, isn't as rich in terms of addressing other issues, psychosocial issues, that sort of thing. And I also think there's definitely a need for training on, on the kind of communication that you need to do remotely. I think we focus a lot on how to do it and safety, which is absolutely key obviously but now I think everybody recognised that all healthcare professionals need some additional training in how to communicate well in the remote environment and that's something that the Personalised Care Institute is hoping to develop some resources on. If once you've got into a, a, a good relationship with a patient and you've you've got that plan and you're just started to deliver personalised care, I mean, remote consultations must surely be a really valuable part of that, you know, being able to check in with people without them having to come into the surgery. So they've obviously got a pretty important role to play, haven't they? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's nothing wrong with remote cons- consulting at all with the tools. It's just using them appropriately, really. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. The evidence is that if you've got a pre-existing relationship in place, remote consulting works much better, actually. But it's just making sure that those safeguards are there. Also to make sure that we don't exclude people um, potentially who don't find it so easy to yeah. access but actually might have the greatest health needs in terms of health inequalities. Yeah. So could you um, explain a bit about the Personalised Care Institute then and what what you've set up to try and do, um, what you're doing at the moment and what you're hoping to do going forwards? Yeah. Um, So we're we're a virtual institute um, set up by um, NHS England. So we're funded by them and um, we're convened um, by the Royal College of GPs. And basically that we're there to set the standards for training for personalised care for all healthcare professionals, not just in primary care, but um, in secondary care and the community as well. So one of the first things we did was set up a curriculum for personalised care um, and, and, and that's now in place. We also um, provide access to training opportunities. So we have an e-learning website uh, with some of our own training on that primarily where there are gaps so we have a a sort of core package if you like an introduction to core skills personalized care and support planning um, and shared decision making and now we're going to start branching out into more sort of specialized areas so we're just about to launch a maternity module Uh, so we have our own own learning package we also have a credit uh, providers so we set the standards for um, uh, providers and uh, that's to ensure that we provide high quality training for uh, training that actually needs to be either face-to-face or facilitated in some way so for example health coaching training that sort of thing and we've got uh, accredited providers that are on our website we also have a huge number of resources for people um, to access who are interested in personalized care Um, and increasingly we're trying to really uh, reach out to to people so that we can become more of a community of practice uh, for practitioners and to help to support them, you know, on their journey, really developing their skills um, and also trying to build the evidence base really for personalised care and support research. So that, that's, that's basically what we're there to do. I mean, obviously, as the Personalised Care Institute, you're trying to get personalised care embedded across the whole of the NHS. So if there's people listening to this that would like to see some change within their own organisation, maybe so it becomes more standard, where do they start? Is it an individual thing or is it more about changing systems and cultures within their organisation? I think in practical terms, the first thing I would do probably is come and have a look at our website and see what resources yeah. and things we've got there and, and, and courses and that sort of thing. And um, because 
you know, to develop your own skills, that that's the best way around it. But it, it's about much more than training. You're absolutely right. It's about um, system change, really. Um, and you're only going to get that really if um, the system is supportive. And that system might be your own practice. It might be a primary care network. It might be a bigger organisation. But the whole organisation has kind of got to embrace it, really. Um, you can't really do it on your own other than, you know, very, very occasionally, as we, as we were discussing before. Um, so I think everybody's got to buy into it, including the management, um, et cetera. So they've got to be willing to uh, provide training or access to training. But even more importantly, they've got to provide the resources and the space for people to be able to practice their skills, you know, and to be supervised where necessary. So, it, it, you know, it's not, a, it's not a simple matter of just doing the training. You've got to be able to, to practice, to feedback, and get some feedback on your skills so that you can improve. And I think it's also important that, that patients are aware of what we're doing and why we're doing it, because it's very important that they're on board and that they understand that it's okay, you know, to ask questions, um, to talk about what matters to them. And that should be an expectation, really. And primary care networks, do you see them as being quite important in driving this agenda forward? I mean, is it easier to do it across a network rather than in a practice? I think it's a great opportunity um, because um, particularly during COVID, primary care networks have, have been uh, working together really, really closely, particularly on delivering the vaccination programme, for example. So they've built up those those links and those ways of collaborative working. And that's really important to the delivery of personalised care, not just between um, PCNs, but across communities, really. The whole thing has got to work together um, if you're going to deliver deliver it. So I think that really is a major opportunity and I think that and the, the additional roles that we mentioned before are are absolutely key. I also think there's a, there's a great opportunity for training across organisations, so multi-professional training, which is something that perhaps we haven't done so much of as GPs, we've tended to do our own CPD, but this is a real opportunity to work with our teams because we're all learning about it um, together. Okay, so I think I think that's something that that's new and that's very valuable because increasingly um, we're working as part part of a team, working in a multidisciplinary way, um, so that personalised care will really help us with that. So thanks very much to Dr. Pauline Foreman for speaking with me this week. You can find more details about the Personalised Care Institute in the notes for this episode. So finally, on to our regular good news section. We've already had some good news at the start of the podcast, but we've got our regular little bit at the end as well. The NHS Parliamentary Awards are an annual awards programme that allows MPs to nominate individuals and organisations from across health and social care to be recognised for their achievements. This year's awards were held on Wednesday, and I'd just like to highlight the winner of the Excellence in Primary Care category, who is GP Dr Bruce Allen from West Sussex. Dr Allen was recognised for the work he did setting up an out-of-hour service to provide weekend cover for all of the care homes across Sussex from their registered GP practice. So just a big congratulations to him, but also really well done to all the people and organisations that were shortlisted in the category. When I looked at them, I thought they really showcased the breadth of what primary care does and how it can make a real difference. And it's also good to see MPs acknowledging that by nominating people from their constituencies. If anyone who's listening has got any positive news you'd like to share on the podcast, then please do get in touch. You can email us at gppodcast at haymarket.com or tweet us at gponlinenews. So that's it for this episode. Don't forget you can keep up with all the latest news affecting general practice from our website at gponline.com. 
Thank you for listening and thanks to Nick and Luke and a big thank you to Dr Pauline Foreman for speaking with us this week. If you have any comments about the podcast, do get in touch on Twitter at GP Online News. And if you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate us and subscribe to Talking General Practice from wherever you get your podcasts. We're back in two weeks. See you then. <laughs>